Welcome to Between Two Parties, the People's Podcast. This is your host, Bernadette Pinkowski mckee My mission is to invite podcast listeners on an inspirational and empowering journey into the world of Oregon politics and social issues. I believe that when we, the people, learn how to navigate the political landscape and reclaim our power, we will form a unified movement that creates solution-focused change outside of the Democratic and Republican parties that are corrupted by the establishment at this time. My goal is to be in service to all Oregonians. So with that, let's get started. Good morning, Between Two Party listeners. This is your host, Bernadette. I am with uh, Rob Miller today. We are going to be discussing the history of the State of the Union Address in Why It Matters. And then we're going to touch a little bit about uh, Tuesday night's State of the Union Address that uh, President Biden uh, provided. It was quite a a show. Um, Good morning, Rob. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I am doing good here in the Pacific Northwest. It's a beautiful sunny day out today. Excellent. 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 So we have a great topic today. So I think follow on from the last time we met, we kind of talked a lot about, you know, a little bit about the Constitution, a little bit about the articles of the Constitution, kind of talked a little bit about how laws are made. And I think we're going to continue that today as we segue into the State of the Union. Right. And, and we'll still talk a little bit more. It'll be a little repetitive uh, and it'll make more sense from what we talked about last time as we segue into today. And then we'll go back and talk about some laws and things of that nature. So remember, it's, uh, it's kind of educational uh, or it, hopefully it's educational to the listeners uh, as well as uh, current uh, additionally. Exactly. So. So last time we talked about, again, the U.S. Constitution, um, uh, the seven articles within the U.S. Constitution. Remember, there's 27 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. We talked about how, uh, uh, as, as I opine about the Constitution, I think, you know, a lot of uh, folks will say we don't have a living Constitution I beg to differ with that opinion, and I, I, I remember it's seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, Article 1 being it, the definitions and talks about the legislative branch. Article 2 talks about the executive branch. Article 3 talks about the judicial branch. Mm-hmm. And then if you get into Articles 4, 5, 6, and 7, you talk really about the states and their um, duties within the US Constitution. And then as you look at Article 7, you talk about how amendments are made and put into the US Constitution to hence get the 27 amendments that we currently have that support the US Constitution, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so if you go to that second article, that second article talks about in the US Constitution, uh, in essence, how we have the State of the Union today. And it, it, in, in Article 2, it mm-hmm. says the president shall from time to time give the Congress 
information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. And that's in Article 2, Section 3, Clause 1. So that's where we get this annual State of the Union address uh, provided by the President of the United States. Back early on in the Constitution, uh, you know, you didn't have Zoom calls, you didn't have uh, uh, mainstream media, you didn't have television. Uh, a lot of uh, the states of the unions back in the day, uh, early on, were provided just from the president to the U.S. Congress. Mm -hmm. And it was a written report. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine, you know, for hundreds of years, that happened that way. And mm -hmm. not really until we got into the radio, television era in the 1913s or so. I think Woodrow Wilson was the first president that, that, that came up on the net and actually gave a State of the Union in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. And so really now for the last, you know, 100 years, our presidents have provided a State of the Union address that's that's kind of uh, along the lines of what we have what we witnessed just Tuesday night. And so you understand mm -hmm. there there's a little historical perspective of the Constitution. There's the seven articles. There's the 27 amendments. And there is specifically now how we go into uh, the State of the Union on Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. Now, what did the president do and what have they normally done in present in presenting the State of the Union? Well, the president pretty much reached back because remember, this is now, in essence, his third State of the Union. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go back to so he was elected in 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, he took over and assumed uh, the presidency in 2021. Mm -hmm. um, so he really couldn't have provided a State of the Union address uh, in 2021 because he was new to the presidency. And it really wasn't his presidency that he could uh, talk about historically the past year or, or what his uh, view was in the following year for the to, to go into the next fiscal year. So he did, though, give a State of the Union address. If we, if we go back historically, I think 100 days into office, mm -hmm. he kind of got, and, and remember that was in 2021. And if you look historically back at, in the, you know, in the U.S. Uh, chambers of the House of Representatives is, is the, the Speaker of the House invited uh, him over uh, mm -hmm. in 2021, in 2022, and now 2023. When he gave those uh, State of the Union addresses in 21 and 22, why, of course, it was during COVID. So if you look on the television and, 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 and watch it, there's not a lot of uh, Congress folks in, in the chamber. So everybody was pretty much zooming into that State of the Union or watching it on television. Mm -hmm. uh, so he did give somewhat of a modified update in 21. And then he gave his really his first State of the Union in 22. Mm -hmm. And what he then did in 22 is say, OK, this is what I accomplished with the help of the Congress of the United States uh, in 2021 and probably uh, 2020, uh, early 2022. That's what he accomplished and that was his first State of the Union. And then he also said what he was going, what he was planning on doing the next fiscal year. Because when the President of the United States presents the State of the Union, Mm -hmm. About 60 plus days after that, remember we talked about how a bill becomes law mm -hmm. and we talked about the president can write bills to then have the Congress then try to approve them. Mm 
right. because he, he's a he's a separate branch uh, mm-hmm. uh, of the according to the Constitution, separate but equal. So he could submit bills for the Congress to review. So what he does going into the State of the Union, he actually uh, organizes all the proposed uh, operating bills that will support his Department of State, his Department of Agriculture, his Health and Human Services, his Department of Health and uh, Homeland Security, his Department of State, his Department of Defense. So he's he's done his homework. And he's said, this is what I want the U.S. Congress to look at, scrutinize, mm-hmm. and then make into law my proposed bills and budgets for the executive branch of the United States of America, which constitutionally he oversees uh, with regards to Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution. That's his authority. Mm-hmm. So he is providing that proposed bill to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Congress after the State of the Union. And during the State of the Union, he talks about all this great performance the year prior, but he also talks about what he wants his vision for that new bill to become law. So he's trying to convince the Congress, this is what I see, this is what I would like you to pass. So if he gives the State of the Union early in February, like he did, mm-hmm. he'll then give that budget, proposed budget to the Congress here in the next 60 days. And then they have, in essence, from, we'll say, uh, February and March, they have really from April all the way to the end of September to put that proposed bill into laws. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'll have a law now that supports the Department of Homeland Security. That'll be the budget. You'll have a law that supports the Department of State. That will that bill will become a budget, which is then put into law once right. it's approved by both uh, houses of the U.S. Congress, the House of Representatives, and the Senate, and all of the subcommittees that we've talked about that oversee the departments within the executive branch will bring those department heads. So the Secretary of State will come over and brief with the uh, Committee for uh, Foreign Affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the committee that oversees the Department of Homeland Security, they'll interview and talk with everybody from DHS and they'll get what the department heads or the secretaries of those departments see uh, as their budget going down the road. Now, remember, the U.S. House of Representatives subcommittees will have their hearings. And so all summer long, you'll see these hearings occurring all the time. So when you watch Mm -hmm. C-SPAN, you'll see that. And that's what they're doing. It's a subcommittee for the Department of Homeland Security. It's a subcommittee for the Department of Defense. It's a subcommittee for the Department of uh, Health and Human Services. So you name it, all the departments, all those subcommittees that oversee it will be interviewing the executive branch department heads. And that'll happen in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. And the House of Representatives will pass their proposed bills into law. And the Senate will pass their proposed bills into law. And then, of course, the House and the Senate then need to reach agreement before they send that 
bill to the president to then become the law uh, of the land, in essence, to support the executive branch. So about halfway through, he was talking about the things where they passed bipartisanly. So this is what you were talking about. He was basically going over about last year what they passed. And then he went on to start speaking of what he wanted the Congress to focus on this year. Right. Right. And and by definition, this year, um, he will have all of the all of the proposed bills that are put into law will, in essence, be bipartisan bills Mm -hmm. because the U.S. House of Representatives majority are the Republicans and the U.S. Senate majority are the Democrats. So all of the bills that are put into law under from now until September 30th that will support the fiscal. Remember, the United States operates fiscally from one October through the end of September. That's uh-huh. the that's the fiscal. Uh, so when a when a proposed bill becomes law, then normally it goes into effect one October for for budgeting for the Department of Homeland Security for the Department of State. And each of those will be laws mm-hmm. in support of the departments under the executive branch or Article Two of the Constitution. So Article One of the Constitution, the legislative branch, will will put their finger on those proposed bills. And remember, the president has a has a priority and he has a vested interest. But yet, members of the House of Congress. And the Senate, they have they've got to support their constituents. So it may be, for example, in the Department of Defense, that they want to keep 10 fighter aircraft in the inventory. And that's a notional number. We're not referring to any plane or anything. But then the U.S. House of Representatives, you know, if if those 10 planes are always flown and, and, and all the parts are supported in Phoenix, Arizona, where the manufacturer is, well, the, the congressperson in Phoenix, Arizona, who represents his constituents or her constituents, and all of a sudden we're going to shut off production of the planes. Well, then that may put his or her constituents out of work in Phoenix, Arizona. So they may not agree with that. So you can see how how the House of Representatives and the Senate will view it differently than the Department of State or the Department of Defense views it, you know. Uh, because they have to represent their constituents and what's best for their constituents may not be what the executive branch asked for. So you may see where the executive branch is asking for 10 planes and all of a sudden the House of Representatives says, no, you're going to have 20 planes Mm -hmm. because the constituents work in the factories in Phoenix that support. And that's a that's a a notional or a fake uh, um, example. But that's how, you know, it's it's it, it depends on whose whose perspective you're looking at the proposed bill comes from. So there's a lot of deliberation that goes on. Yeah. You, you bet. And so, and so I guess my question is, because yeah. after I was hearing him talk about what they did pass, which right. I don't think anything that they passed I'd ever heard of. Right. Uh, so my question is, is do you feel that 
we have a distortion that our our parties are more divided than what they actually are because it's like from my what i see and what i hear on mainstream media is we are very divided by political parties but yet like today as i was listening it's like you know there is divisiveness but they did get things done it's just it's stuff that they don't put out in the mainstream media or that we really are aware of okay so let, 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 let's go back a last year mm-hmm. on a couple of the bills that became law. And I think mm-hmm. last time we talked about this omnibus bills that became law. Right. Okay. Under this U.S. House of Representatives and the new Speaker of the House, they have passed a set of rules. And those mm-hmm. set of rules will not allow an omnibus bill to be even proposed and passed in the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. So, and they and they will name the bill according to what the bill supports. So, this will be the this will be the bill that supports Department of Homeland Security. This will be the bill that supports the Secretary of State. What? This will be the bill that supports the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh-huh. This will be the bill that supports the Department of Transportation. You won't get these inflation reduction bill that you have no idea what's in it, you know, and or there's what a ton of pork in there. That- yeah. so, and they're, and they're not going to combine the department of state with the department of defense and the department of Homeland security bills all into one omnibus. Thank God. They're going to pass the bills separately. So you and I can go on the U S congressional website and see exactly what proposed bill they are that they have in subcommittee that they have in committee that they have on the floor of the house of representatives that they have in the subcommittee the committees and the house of the senate well but also too i think that that is going to help because when they pass these bills that have a ton of stuff in them yeah almost they're you know they're five thousand pages you know plus there's no possible way that a congressman within 24 48 72 hours can have time to really review all that. And and now under this Speaker of the House, they have passed a rule set that says you cannot even have anything that is proposed uh, that doesn't give 72 hours to absorb it. So they've changed the rule set within the House of Representatives under the new Speaker of the House. And that was all part of why the delay to get uh, Congressman Speaker of the House McCarthy elected. Uh And that was all part of the rules committees and things of that nature to change the way and add more transparency was what they're saying to the house of representatives. That's great. So so what I thought was just one second, what I thought was very interesting is in the very beginning of Biden's speech, he said that he felt that Nancy Pelosi will go out as the in history as the greatest speaker of the house I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, he's, he's opining. He can opine. He, he's the president of the United States. He's he's a guest of the Speaker of the House, uh, and he and he and uh, uh, Speaker of the House uh, McCarthy uh, invited him, and uh-huh. he gave his he gave his opinion. And he, so what he did is he gave what he did historically. 
uh, with, in essence, the Democrats and some bipartisanship. And he touted the successes. And then he said, this is what I plan to do when I give you this big uh, uh, proposed bill to support the executive branch of the United States in the next fiscal year, which starts one October. So, so, so did he have to break it down by the rules that were passed with the House of Rep- Representatives? That he had he's, to- he's a separate branch. He, he, he's not bound by those rules in the U.S. Congress. He gave his State of the Union because he's an equal but separate branch, according to Article 1, 2, and 3 of the Constitution. So he gave and he and he completed his due diligence to support Article 2, you know, the clause that we talked about that he has to give, in essence, his State of the Union. So he provided his historical perspective, touted all of his accomplishments and the Democrat accomplishments and the bipartisan accomplishments for the people of the United States of America. And then he also said, and this is my vision in the future, and this is what I propose that you, Congress, spend your money on and pay the bills for in support of what I want the Department of Homeland Security to do, what I want the DOD to do, what I want the State Department to do. And then why, of course, all summer long, again, those subcommittees will meet uh, with members of the executive branch, uh, and then they will uh, uh, merge those bills into law. And ideally, they pass all of those laws before the fiscal year of the United States starts one October. And if the fiscal and if those laws are not put in, if those bills are not put into law by one October, they will pass an emergency spending, uh, uh, you know, uh, continuing resolution. And that is emergency spending for like the next month, two months or three months until they figure out and get the entire bill passed into law. And so too often in the last five to 10 years, the the U.S. Congress has not done their job and passed the proposed bills into law. And therefore, the U.S. budget has been operating on continuing resolutions month after month after month, quarter after quarter, instead of cleanly passing an entire one-year bill into law so that the entire Department of Defense knows their annual operating budget. Instead, they've been doing it monthly or three months at a time. And when you have to do an emergency spending and a continuing resolution, you're only able to use X amount of percentage of what the previous law was to support. So, So when they do that, they're not able to the minimum is they have to give at least, you know, uh, a certain a high percentage of what it was previously. You can't you, you're not able to go above that. And so so they've been operating. You know, think about it. you're a business operator. You're a business owner in the Department of Defense, but you're only budgeted for three months. Well, we have planes that take five years to build. They're on a five year proposed build plan. But yet the U.S. Congress is only given the Department of Defense a three month credit card, you know? So you can see how, how, how dangerous that can be for the U.S. executive branch to operate on congressionally mandated continuing resolutions that only go three months, 
four months, five months, six months at a time. You want to really operate off an annual operating budget. So basically, we do have divided Congress that is not willing to work together and for the best interest of. No, they 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 actually have to work together uh, because you have to fund the government. Yeah, so, but but why? What what's keeping them from? getting an actual bill together for the whole fiscal year something something's out of alignment if if they could they're only doing historically historically they uh the historically they have not found common ground so it, it remember you only need a majority in the house of representatives to pass a bill to become a law which is different than the senate you need 60 votes in the Senate and 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 to pass a bill into law. Again, in, 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 unless it's a continuing resolution, and there are some there are some ways to pass budgets without a 60-40 majority. You can do it with just a simple majority, and that's what the Senate uh, last fiscal year has done. So my question is then, is it, we've been doing this emergency thing for like every three months, let's say. Yeah. Isn't that harming our country overall? Yeah, you, you, you could argue that you, you could argue that, um, that remember every, every exec, every, uh, department, uh, under the executive branch needs its own federal funding needs its own bill to become law. Right. So when you don't when you don't when you don't finalize that bill to become law for the Department of Homeland Security going into 1 October, you have to pass a continuing resolution that gives them 30 days of funding, 60 days of funding or 90 days of funding. Normally they've been doing it at 90 days of funding. Mm-hmm. So so yes, you 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 put the federal government, the executive branch uh, you, you hang them out to dry sometimes because they don't have an annual operating budget. So one would argue, hey, uh, Congress, do your job. You, you've got to figure out how to produce an annual operating budget. And they have not done that over the years. Well, and, and then I, I feel like it's kind of a sticky wicket, too, because if they're just doing these three months emergency yeah. bill, you know, that nobody's paying attention to how truly in debt are we really like well, yeah we're, yeah we're we 30 trillion in debt and and, right, and the more and, you push it off the worse it's just gonna get right and so and so you know and if you're talking about the state of the union and there's a lot of discussion who's added to you know which president added more to the, the u.s national debt of 30 trillion well okay hold on <laughs> it's not just the president because remember, we just talked about this process. The president proposes his bill and then it's up to the house and the Senate to pass it. And then he has the veto power if it doesn't fit, you know? So, so in reality, it's, it's really, you know, and right now we're operating. uh, I think last uh, time we spoke, we may, I may have misspoke. This is the 118th U S Congress. I think maybe somewhere in there, I snuck in the 218th. No, Uh we just finished the 117th and now we're in the 118th. Okay. So in the 117th, 
what they did, that big omnibus bill, they added, you know, they, they, they added the Department of Homeland Security uh, operating budget with the Department of Defense and the Department of State. And they put that all into one big omnibus bill. So they didn't separate them out. So you can clearly see that this bill was only supporting Department of Homeland Security. And this bill was only supporting the Department of State. And then they gave them, you know, just a couple of hours to read it. And so the gurus behind the, you know, the, the, the closed doors mm-hmm. made it all happen. And then they pushed it out to the House of Representatives floor for a vote. It was not vetted before the subcommittees. It was not vetted before the committee. It was not necessarily vet. So, so, so that, that's what the House of Representatives right now is trying to get away from. And they're trying to install, instill some discipline in the process so that you and I can see what they're working on and what the proposals are and then how that bill is eventually be- going to become law. And this, the same thing happens at the state level. You know, you right now, in the, right now in the state of Oregon, they operate from a one July fiscal, the, the fiscal year starts one July and goes through 30, through the end of June. Uh-huh. So right now the, the Oregon State House of Representatives and Senate are putting, pushing bills into law to support the fiscal year for 2024 in the state of Oregon. So they're trying to get all the bills into law prior to one July. Right. And that's what the state of Oregon is doing. And they're trying to do that in essence for the next two years because they meet every two years. And if they need to meet it annually, they do and the, they'll, they'll call it. But so that's what they're trying to do in Oregon. They're trying to, they're trying to pass those two year bills. Mm-hmm. Whereas the U S federal government is trying to pass a one year bill. Gotcha. Yeah. And the bill then is becomes law. So that's kind of a breakdown of why the state of the union happened on Tuesday night and now the road ahead. So what is the Senate and the house and the subcommittees and the subcommittees all waiting on? They're waiting on the proposed, you know, you can imagine how big this thing is, this booklet proposed bill from the president of the United States presented to the U S Congress on what he wants for the fiscal year 20 for, for the next fiscal year, starting in one October. So basically he's meeting with all these different departments. He's already done all that. Well, no, I know, but he went with all these departments. Yes. Had these different discussions and then had these bills drafted up. Yep. Yep. And then he put it and then he stacked it up and then he's just going to give the big old booklet over to the Congress in essence. And then then they can weed through it and they could, they could dissect it and tear it apart in the subcommittees. And then they could bring in their interviews over from the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense. Hey, you say you need this. What are you going to do this for? You know, what have you been doing? Why do you need an increase of X amount of dollars? Last time we gave you X amount of dollars, you're asking for Y amount of dollars. Why the change? Are you increasing the manpower? Do you need more manpower? So then they then figure out what they're going to do because they're a separate but equal branch. Hey, thanks for your input, Mr. President. We'll now write the bill as we want because we're the U.S. Congress. Gotcha. So, so, so that that's all part of the equation as to how a bill becomes law. 
And then I think the best thing for people to do is go out there to, you know, school rock and how bill becomes law. I'll tell you that, that, that really is, it's really fabulous. And I think on one of your shows, you, you should, you should play the video to begin with, maybe even on the next time we meet. Right. Uh, it's well worth it. It's a, it's a fabulous learning aid. Right. And it, it is, it is, it is still, uh, it's timeless. It's withstood the, it's withstood time and it's effective and it'll, you know, there's a lot, like we said, there's a lot of people that do not know how a bill becomes law. We, we, we need more schoolhouse rock. Oh, I, man, let me tell you. I did have to chuckle within his State of the Union address is okay. he says that studies are showing that when kids starting at three and four go to preschool, they are more likely to finish high school now. So because okay. this is during his education reform. Yeah. And I had to kind of chuckle because it was like I during our generation, there was no such thing as preschool. Some people, some of us didn't even go to kindergarten. I didn't go to kindergarten, but you know, we, we had actual higher graduation rates than what they do now. So I did have to chuckle at that a little bit of like, so let me opine on what that right there. Uh Okay. Just a little bit. So why would the Democrats want to have government funded schooling from the lowest stage possible to include daycare at the lowest stage possible through grade 16 college, 18. right? I, I'm sorry. Uh, so you would go K through 12, that would take you through high school. Right, through 13, 14, 15, 16 would take you as a graduate of college or university. Oh, okay, I see what you're yeah. saying. So, so, so they want, I would argue the Democrats want, they want funded government daycare from early, from an early age, birth plus, okay, all the way through grade 16. So they can mold the minds of the children. Well, that, that could be part of the discussion because if you're government funded, then you have to follow the government mandates. Right. And right now, one would argue if you go to any grade school, high school, or university, and you go to the school board, and you go to the teachers that teach, one would argue predominantly you have Democrat-led teachers, universities, school boards uh, that run the schools. And so, yes, uh, that it, it, it would behoove them to try to, to increase participation in that educational uh, track. And I would argue that the Republicans are saying, no, that's not what we want. As a matter of fact, we want school choice because we think the public school systems are failing our students. And if you have a, a, you know, they, there's lots of talk about minority neighborhoods and minority neighborhood schools not being up to par. Mm-hmm. And if there is a single mother in a minority majority school district that wants to send her son or daughter to private school and she's not capable or fiscally capable 
then school choice, which is being passed in a lot of the states, Mm -hmm. would allow her to take that government funded money that was programmed to go into her local public grade school or public high school. She could then get a voucher and spend that money at a private school or a charter school of her choice. Hence, that's why the term school choice. Right. And, and we have that coming up on our ballot in 2024, or if we get enough signatures to school choice. Oh, okay, in Oregon. In Oregon, yeah. There's a school choice measure right now yeah. that they're working on getting signatures for so it can be on the ballot in 2024. Right, as a referendum. And it will, it'll be a constitutional amendment if it passes for the state of Oregon. Yeah, as a referendum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... So, yeah, so they're trying to get it. Yeah. And again, remember, Oregon is a primarily Democrat led state. Uh, A lot of the major metropolitan cities are Democrat cities. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the the population will vote. Right. But a lot of people are tired of the public school system, too, on, on both sides. Yeah. So we'll see where that goes. They see that they're failing. Yeah, just like they passed the proposed gun law, uh, the 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 one would argue that that gun law was primarily Democrats versus Republicans in the state of Oregon as to what to do with the gun, um, and that so one would argue that hey, change nothing in the state of Oregon. That's likely that could be the outcome of school choice. But the problem is, it's like with that measure, yeah. there was it lacked transparency of yeah. what that really yeah. stood for. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of well, there's, there's a lot of uh, transparency missing in these ballot measures that's come across. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like in this one with the no tolls thing, ODOT yeah. is totally presenting it in a different way. Yeah, and, you know, to the public than what their real agenda is. Yeah, so we'll see. You know, we'll see where that ballot measure goes. That's you make a good point, but you know, that's again, like we said last time, that's democracy working. Whether 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 you like it or not, you know, that's uh, it's corruption a, working. It, that is corruption working. No, no, I would argue. Hold on, it's a it's a it's a majority Democrat led state. But if you are presenting things with that have an intent of misinformation to misguide the public when they make the decision to vote. That is an issue. That's a first amendment, right? <laughs> Whether you like it or not. <laughs> Anyways. We need transparency in our government. Oh, no, I, I don't disagree. And that's what the house of representatives in the federal government has voted on more transparency. Get out of jail free card. when you talk like that, dude? No, I, I I'm just, I, I, I'm, I try to speak what's reality, not what I would want or what other folks would want. You just have to, you know, you have to live with the cards you're dealt. But this and, doesn't have to be our reality. OK, well, then, 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 then the, the, the ballot measure will have to be convincing enough and transparent enough to win the ballot measure, which is great. That's what it's all about, you know? But you know, but in the end of the day, who has the money? Who has the the media aligned with them? It will be 
Oregon, the Department of Oregon Education, and yeah. they will go ahead and twist and contort this measure or ballot, right? Yeah. Yeah. To make the masses or of right. Oregonians not in favor of it. Yeah. I, I would... Oregonians, they just want quick information. They don't want to take the time to research and see what it's really all about. Yeah. And, and so I would argue that the educators in Oregon, primarily public education, does not want competition from a school choice voucher. Right. And then you, because, you're going to have the teachers unions. They have a ton of money, too. So everybody's going to be pumping money in like no tomorrow. Not going to disagree. And you just have to understand why a public grade school or a public high school would not want a school voucher. Because if if you're, for example, um, in, in the public PIL in Portland and you lose a student out of one of the schools, we'll just say the school is Roosevelt High School. And if you lose a student at a Roosevelt High School, then you could lose that funding for that individual student, not only from the city, not only from the county, not only from the state, but also from the federal government, that money could be lost. Because for every student that is has their family below the poverty line at Roosevelt, they get an added uh, amount of federal dollars added to what the city, the county, and the state are putting into that school. So, so if, if 20% of the students uh, are below the poverty line in the Roosevelt School District, then federal dollars that, that, that would support that 20% poverty level families would pour into Roosevelt. So if you took a student out and now 20%, now there's only 19% poverty level students, you're going to lose federal dollars that would go into Roosevelt. And, and I totally understand yeah. that. Yeah. But the problem is, is that parents are tired of their children no longer getting a quality education because mm. the public school system in the majority of the areas have turned into a political activist sideshow and 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 they're getting off a of focus of what really matters reading yep. writing right. arithmetic and then kate brown passed the whole thing of basically kids can pass if they don't you know if they're not even able so, to do reading and math it, it, it's just it's it's ridiculous so you're saying they you're education. saying they lowered the standards they did okay and very parents, good so, parents are tired of their taxpayer dollars going to fund things that their kids aren't getting their needs met and it's turned into i'm, I'm sorry a political and activist shit show it, it needs to be something that hey if you're an activist as a teacher if you're very involved politically great don't bring it into the classroom take it on your time and do your thing do you so boo? so so what you yeah so what you are bringing up is your political perspective. And there are those on your side of the political uh, discussion when it comes to school choice. And there are those that are on the other side of the discussion. And the numbers matter. And we will see where the numbers fall 
when democracy gets a chance to look at it. And that's but what you're Daniel, asking for. But Daniel, Just give it a remember, chance. But remember when you and I were in school, I remember it very clearly. A, we didn't talk politics except for when it was in government class or civics class. And we sure as heck didn't get into activism. We went to school to learn the basics and move through. And, and, and now it's totally different now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my son's generation, they were the last ones in, in grade school, middle school, and even high school that they really weren't getting it. I mean, they were getting influenced with it a little bit, but not like what it is today, yeah. you know? And, know. And, and so what you are, it sounds like you are advocating for if you want to participate in how students are taught, then you need to have involvement in the independent school board selections which are voted on in a democratic manner that's all i'm saying i'm saying the system is working right now as designed if you don't like the way the school system in portland is executing its mission then you have to go no further than the portland independent school board and what they are voting for on the school board so that the superintendent of the Portland Interscholastic League of, can, can execute the priorities that the school board gives because we, 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 we are held accountable by who is voted in. And so right now, I would argue democracy is working and the predominant, uh, predominantly in Portland, they are, they are okay with who the school board is because they've elected them and therefore they are okay with the way the school system is executing its mission. Now, if there is a minority or a majority that wants to contest that, then they will most likely run for school board offices and they will try to get uh, referendums or uh, like you're talking about uh, voted on. So well, no, and that and yeah. that is that is happening right now. Good. There you go. But, uh, a lot of the times like there's school boards that they don't want to hear from the, the parents are now. But I, I think the biggest mistake is and I have to take accountability and ownership is the fact that we all got comfortable. We all trusted our leaders and weren't paying attention. And I know for me, I never paid attention to local at all. I always focused on the federal. I didn't even focus on state that much either. So that was my own personal ignorance, right? But I think there were a lot of us that did that. And while we weren't paying attention, they were creating something that is now the, a gigantic firestorm. And now we're paying attention, but they're not liking, now that we're paying attention, they're not liking what we're sharing and the changes that we would like to see for the benefit of our, our children and our future generations. And so there's this huge pitchback and there's censorship now going on for the parents that are saying, hey, this isn't okay, right? We need something different. And so, yes, you are correct. The only way is that, yes, we do have to go in, we have to speak our truth and we need to apply pressure, but also too, parents that are concerned about what's being taught and what's going on in our schools, they do need to run for school board so they can get on there and make the, the change. So we're there just, we're just, you, gonna, you just uh, nailed it. All right. You just nailed it. Now let me segue a little bit back to the state of the union and some of the policies or some of the vision, the vision one, 
the historical uh, credit that the president uh, uh, is attempting to tell the general population and then the road ahead. So it's interesting. Uh, There's been a lot of fact checking on some of his data, uh, both uh, on the conservative side and on the liberal side of the media. You know, CNN and the Washington Post did a fact checker. Uh, They talked about, you know, the deficit and the debt and how many millions of jobs were created. You know, he stated it's He's 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 generated 12 million jobs since he took over. He said I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. And, and, so, that, and that we are at a three point four percent unemployment rate, too. Yeah. And then you got to ask the question, how many have walked away from uh, employment to begin with? You also have to look at um, uh, he talked about taxes and how much uh, big businesses haven't paid in taxes but yet there were some laws passed uh, in the previous under his administration that allows um, businesses to have deductions. And if you take the deductions now, you'll pay less in income taxes. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, truth that's not being told in a lot of these, um, Hey, I'm boasting about this. And, uh, and if cities and States, uh, during COVID, uh, did not give small businesses and businesses an opportunity to keep employment. They then said, well, because of COVID, we don't want you. We're going to declare an emergency and you'll have to shut down all these businesses. Well, now all of that's kind of been released. And now all the people are coming back to those businesses. So why, of course, the number of jobs are going to increase because one would argue that the cities and mostly liberal cities led by liberal Democrat um, leaders shut down their cities. Right. Because and then he said that he has done more for uh, getting people um, back to work in two years than any president has ever done in four. And I was just like, well, yeah, when, when, when you lose that number, when, when you close that <laughs> those millions of jobs down and those millions of businesses down, you're going to lose millions of employees and a participation rate. So now he is taking credit for that added gain. And, and then, and so, okay, so, so we understand that. We also understand that he's saying, well, the previous president, you know, is accountable for 25% of the national debt of 30, 32 trillion today under his administration. Well, hold on. Uh, He did not run. He did not have uh, the majority in the House uh, and and in essence, the Senate the last two years of his administration. So one would argue, wait a second, don't give the House and the Senate a break. And it's all on the president. So it's very difficult to monitor under each president the accumulation of deficit, which is an annual uh, number for the budget, and the debt, which is the cumulative number for the debt. When we talk about the debt of the United States, we're talking about its historical debt from inception until now, which is $32 trillion. When we talk about the annual operating budget being a deficit. We're talking about only the one-year budget 
that's going into effect that would that would go from one October to the end of September. What is that deficit? Well, and then also too, I would I would like to address his wonderful hypocrisy in regards to um, calling out Big Corp and and their taxes and everything. What about him? I mean, what about him? And what is he doing with his money? Let Let's do a little bit of you know fact checking investigation on how much of his money is going to Ukraine. And then he's sitting there and he's blaming everything on Putin. And I'm just like sitting there. Come on, buddy. Like smoke and mirrors. It was just like. I, I, I literally, it's like I had well, to laugh. Well, to address what you're saying, when he took over in January of 21, inflation was quite low. And now inflation is quite high. Oh, no, no, no. But he said, he said inflation has dropped significantly. Hold on. So what, so, right. So what he did is, what he did is he, if it, if inflation rose to eight point, eight almost nine percent and then it's now down from that eight nine percent that's what he said it is now plummeted from that high under my administration to now uh still a high under my administration but it dropped from eight to five so yeah, he's saying so he's saying truthfully it dropped from eight to five but he's not he's not telling you that under his administration it rose from one to eight so it rose to the highest in X amount of years, and then it dropped under his administration, but it's still the highest that it's been. So that's but, the point. But, but the whole thing is, there's no wonder why people were getting frustrated and screaming out liar during yeah. the State of the Union address, because yeah. he's not he's he's skewing the truth into but his not, advantage. But not, every, but not everybody follows those numbers as closely as you are. And they don't all understand that. So remember, what was the price of gas when he first came into office? Two seventy five. I remember was, it. how high did it go, and where is it now? Five so, bucks, and now so it's talking, like three eighty nine. So he's not going to talk about the tax inflation that occurred under his administration because it doesn't be. It's not. It's not. It doesn't look good. So when the inflation went so high under his administration. Uh, he's not going to brag about that because inflation, in essence, is a tax. Because if you have to pay more for a commodity, that's like being taxed at a higher rate. Would you agree? But my question is, is how how are we supposed to trust our leaders when they are pathological liars or skew the truth? So you're supposed to, so you have, you have the option to trust but verify. And that's what you're doing right now in your podcast. You're trying to verify what was stated in the State of the Union address. Right, and you have to, He you, was you, lying you, to the American people. On you, you have Well, he didn't lie. He, he talked about it went from inflation was a high at eight. It dropped down to five. So he dropped inflation 3.5. He didn't he talk about the truth. He, <laughs> I, I, I get it. But he, but he really did. He just didn't tell the whole story. He told the convenient story that made him look good or look better. But you're you're an observant uh, participant in democracy and you did your homework and you looked at, you know, one point five to eight percent inflation down to five percent. OK, got it. So you understand that, you know, that jobs were at a all time high minority uh, minorities were uh, they had the highest uh, black Americans had the highest pay that they've ever had in the history of the United States 
prior to his administration taking over. Uh, women had the highest pay that they've ever had in the history of the United States before he took over. Well, all of a sudden now that's all changed. So he's not going to tout that information. So it's all about how you sell it. And they're but doing. No, their- I, I, I don't have to be super intelligent to okay. not know that when I go into the grocery store to there buy a dozen eggs, that okay. the eggs that I used to buy for, yeah. you know, $4 and something are now $9 and something. He'll say that's not his, that wasn't his issue. I guess at two seventy five, and, you know, at the highest point, I was paying over five bucks a gallon. Now we're down to, you know, three, four, depending upon where, you know, 389 to four, whatever, wherever you go, like, come on, it's, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. But yet he's sitting there or standing there, like giving us like, Oh, we're doing great. Like, it's like, come on, give me a break. Like, there you go. That's why you have a podcast. And that's why you're doing what you do. Giving me the feel good, like lie, like, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. well, then, then you have to, then you have to, if you're going to argue, you have to argue back with facts and stats that tell your side of the story. That's what you're trying to do. That's what we're having a discussion right now. It's good. Right. So, and I'll tell you, go ahead and go and, you know, look at CNN. They did a fact check on his State of the Union. Go to Washington Post. They did a fact check. Go to Fox. You know, they did a fact check. You can go to a lot of media right now and fact check what he what he said. So and, what overall, what did what were they saying? Well, uh, you know, I'm just going to let you do your own home to do your own work. You know, uh, if you look at the Washington Post, for example, uh, you can see where they fact checked him on a lot of items and they discredited what he said. They they vowed they verified the truth and how it could be looked at. So they they just gave you more information that he did not give the 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 viewer during the State of the Union. Uh-huh. They went into more depth. So you can assess that however you want to. Uh, you can look at Fox. You can look at CNN. You could look at Washington Post. There will always be fact checkers. And that's good. That's what that's that's what. Um, no, it's important. Yeah. And, and if and if it's that important to the voter, then they'll look it up. So what did you think about what happened when he started talking about Medicare and Social Security? And he was saying that the Republicans wanted some. Republicans want yeah. Medicare and Social Security to well, so I have not read what Senator what you know what the what the Republican senators or and, and I think what they're trying to say is if we have a federal program like Medicare, like Social Security, it probably deserves a look every five years to see if we should fund it at the current rate that it's being funded. You know, one would argue social security should be funded completely by, I'm a worker, so I help fund my social security. Um, it, it really shouldn't come out of uh, the annual operating budget of the United States. Well, so that's what I'm, what I think is that social security and Medicare, they shouldn't, the government should not be able to dip into that money right. in different areas. If people are paying into their social yeah. It needs to stay in there and the government doesn't touch it. So so you need to get really smart on how the Social Security works. And and, and that's a whole nother discussion. Uh, but um, there there is a board that will say that Social Security, you, you just you have 
you're not your money that you put into Social Security when you started working until now is not the money that's being paid out today or that's waiting for you to wait until you're 62 to 70 to take it out. That money is that money is paying the, the fees today because there are more people in that 62 to 70 plus to 80 that are taking Social Security than there are the boomers providing into Social Security. And because we're operating, we're taking from Paul to pay Peter, the, we're taking from the current um, workforce to pay the older workforce, it's, it's solvent. It's going to run out of money if you look forward to 2030. And I think that's what the Republicans are saying. We need to give it a look. Just because you give it a look doesn't mean you're going to cut anything. You're giving it a look. And that's what oversight from the U.S. Congress should be doing. They should be providing oversight for the bills that they pass into law. And that's what their argument is. Whereas the Democrats are saying, oh, you're just looking to cut Medicare and uh, Social Security. But again, again, those are mistruths. Okay, there you go. And there's probably some truth in there. So. Where, just, where, where is where is there truth in that? If it, it, what is wrong with actually taking a look at the budget for Social Security and Medicare, seeing where is that money going and doing an analysis on it, so then you can prepare for the future? Because it is very true we have the boomers, you know, and so with with that, you know, we are going to be uh, putting out a lot of um, money for for the boomers, but they they deserve that. So I I kind of feel that it's important that we do take a look at, you know, that and assess it. So anyways, I just felt that that was a very um, interesting take that he was doing. Um, But anyways, also too, I wanted to ask your opinion in regards to when he was discussing gun control. Um, he made a mission that or a statement stating that, you know, it's up to Congress to make sure that they ban all assault rifles. So what was your opinion about yeah, that? Yeah, so so what what he's saying is he's he's recommending that the United States go back to 1994 when they aban- when they uh, banned assault rifles, assault weapons. And then that went through a certain period. And then he talked about some statistics and those statistics of mass shootings and killings and all that. That's all up for debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, 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 there really isn't concise data that follows what he said. You can argue it on both sides of the political spectrum is what I'm getting at. Um, so and and. And obviously, with a Republican-led House and a Democrat-led Senate and then a president, and it's highly unlikely that there will be an assault weapon, assault rifle uh, law that's approved. If it didn't happen in the previous House and Senate, would you think it's highly less likely that it's going to occur in a Republican House Democrat Senate. So that's his wish, but one would argue that's probably wishful thinking. And then that's what then uh, Democrats will run on in 2024. 
Well, I guess for me, the, the frustrating thing for me is, in, you know, being in the political sphere for a year and a half, two years now, is the fact that on so many of these talking points, everybody just wants to slap a Band-Aid on an abscess and not really get to the core of the problem, the abscess. And, and with gun control, you know, yes, do I believe that there needs to be background checks? Of course, I totally that that makes sense. But to do away with something because we are seeing an increase in mass shootings, why are we not looking at what is causing these people to be so desensitized or have such severe mental health issues that they are literally going out and doing these heinous crimes? It, I, what what has changed in our society from the time when I was a child in 1970 to now? Because I'm sorry, we my my dad, I would ride in his vehicle and he had his guns in his gun rack, you know, or he carried his gun in the side of his, you know, the side door of his car. It was just like it was that they were everywhere. Yes. Did my dad was he the responsible, you know, hunter, sportsman, and and he locked his his guns up and the ammo was in a totally separate area, of course. But it, it, something has changed in our society to create what we're seeing now. It is not the gun itself. It is not an assault rifle itself. It's something that is going on within our society and within the human mind. Okay, so let me opine on what you said and see if it makes sense. So right now, when when you when a consumer purchases a gun or a rifle um, from a store that sells weapons, uh, that individual goes through an FBI background check. So there is nobody buying a weapon from a retail store that does not go through a background check. So background checks are performed by law on everybody. Like you go to Cabela's and you buy a gun, you're gonna do, you're gonna, uh, an FBI uh, background check will be accomplished on you. Right. Now, what the Democrats are looking for is a, is an overall background check. So let's say you want to let your son use your weapon, you could argue that if everybody has to have a background check, then you would have to have a background check accomplished on your son before you allowed your son to use your weapon. So now you understand why there are a lot of people on the right that don't want uh, a background check other than during the sale of the gun. from a consumer uh, purchasing at a retailer. Because if you do from individual to individual, and if they get there, if if the laws are passed, so every time there's a transaction, even on the private sector of gun to gun, you would then have to pay to get a background check accomplished on your son before you sold or gave that gun to your son. So, and when you go to a gun show, you, you, when you go to a gun show, you'll see a majority of the retailers there uh, are, are they, they may be a gun uh, distributor retailer that's in your city of uh, Gresham. 
and they go to the gun show, they're selling their guns there. Well, there may be a private individual selling their guns there at the gun show. You would think the way the discussion has been that nobody at the gun show has to do a background check when they purchase a gun. That's not true. If a retailer is selling guns at a gun show and you buy that gun from that retailer, you will have to run through a FBI background check. Now, if you're buying it from an enthusiast who's just selling his cachet of 20 weapons, you don't have to go through an FBI background check. He's not a, he's not a registered retailer. So that's the gun show loophole they talk about. They're trying to eliminate that. But if you try to eliminate that, you're also going to affect what you do when you give your gun or sell your gun to your son. It's almost no different. That's why that is so controversial, if that makes sense. No, that that totally makes sense. And I understand okay. that's something that needs to be looked at and addressed. But also, too, with assault rifles. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of assault rifles, but... The whole fact is, is if you look at the Second Amendment, right, and we have the right to bear arms, you know, I, I'm really struggling with they, there is powers of be that are really wanting to restrict or take away lawful, good people, gun owners that are respectful, responsible gun owners, their rights. And we have to look at is why are these numbers of mass shootings and everything increasing? It's a societal issue and not everybody, because there's a small population of people who are struggling with mental health or, or whatever. It's not okay that everybody has to pay a consequence and our second amendment right has to be breached because of these people. We need to address yeah. Why, why are these people doing what they are doing? Yeah. So cause of that. Okay. So, and we all need to be very careful what we designate as an assault rifle. So just so you know, if you own a rifle, a pistol, and the pistol has a magazine that puts in 10 rounds, every time you pull the trigger, the bullet goes out of the chamber. That's a semi-automatic weapon. Correct. That's a semi-automatic weapon. A rifle does the exact same thing. It doesn't increase the speed of how many times you press the trigger. So there really is no difference between a pistol and what they keep calling an assault rifle. Right. It's just press trigger, bullet comes out. Press trigger. So all of those, the guns and the rifles, are all semi-automatic weapons. And so there, re- there really, there rifles. really isn't such thing as an assault rifle, right? It but that's is, what they're calling it. That they're calling they, everything into they, this. It, it, right. Be, and and one could argue they're calling it an assault rifle because AR fifteen. Then they say it's an assault rifle fifteen. No, AR is actually the name of the manufacturer that makes that weapon that looks like what everybody then says is an assault. And it's, military and it's trigger and the way the bullet comes out it is no different than the gun you have. So you could call it an assault gun and you'd be correct. You could call it an assault rifle and you'd be correct. If you're both, if you're referring to guns 
that are semi-automatic weapons that have magazines in them that hold bullets. But then it, so we have to also too, if we're going to call a knife, we need to start calling it an assault knife or a lead pipe, an assault lead pipe or a rope, an assault rope. It's like you, you could take the guns away. There are still things that they can do to, you know, somebody could kill somebody with, like you could kill somebody with your bare hands if you wanted to, like, and to be fair, the rifle, the semi-automatic rifle, does produce a higher velocity of the bullet exiting the barrel of the gun. Agreed. So it is it is more damaging in the rifle than it is necess- that in a shorter uh, uh, gun, for example. So yes, the velocity of that bullet leaving that rifle is pretty potent. Well, and I, and I, and that's, I agree. that's that's kind of why they're saying an assault rifle versus an assault gun. But they're all semi-automatics. That's my only point. Well, and and I agree with that, but I guess my point is is that we need to be addressing what has changed with our society regarding morality, values and how that plays into mental health, right? that we are having people that are being so desensitized from violence that they can go out and do heinous crimes of killing innocent people. Do you know how many people police kill annually, normally? On an an If you went back 10 years from now okay. and you looked at the annual killing numbers that police kill annually, Annually, do you know what that number is? I do not know. Okay, so we'll just go back in time and, and we'll say on average a thousand, give or take 200, 300 to 1300, down to 700, 800 is the number of deaths that police kill people. Could you okay? repeat that again? Yeah, a thousand. The police kill about a thousand people every year. Okay. Okay. Of those a thousand that they kill, a large majority of them are armed. So, for example, if 250 Black Americans were killed last year, and that's a pretty close number, mm-hmm. 210 to 220 of those Black Americans that were killed by police were armed when they were shot and killed by the policeman. If there's 400 to 450 white Americans that were killed last year to police, 400, almost 400 of those white Americans were armed. So it's a very small percentage of unarmed Americans that are killed by police annually. That's my point. Now, If you look at the number of people that are killed in the United States by guns annually, you're talking well above Mm 10,000. So, you know, what's interesting to me is, sadly, historically, there's about 10,000, 9,000 Black Americans that are killed annually by other than police, by gunshots. And 
a majority of those, 90% of those Black Americans that are killed are killed by other Black Americans. So let's say on average, 25 Black Americans today will die at the hands of 25 Black Americans. Nobody will blink. We don't even, it's not even, do, do we, unless it's a mass shooting, unless one of those shootings, four people are, are die, we don't even really discuss it, do we? Not, normally we don't. So 25 Black Americans will die today on average normal at the hands of another Black American. We don't talk about that very much. But if a policeman and a white policeman killed one of those 25 Black Americans, we would have police violence. They would say that's police violence. But again, it's skewing the facts, and that's misinformation. Well, I'm just stating what the facts are according to FBI statistics and Department of Justice statistics historically. Right. But it's interesting that all the alarm bells and whistles will go off if that if that if that white policeman kills a black American that's armed or resists arrest or is unarmed, but we won't blink an eye if another black American on average kills another black American 25 times today. Well, and in both those cases, why are we not addressing the core issue again? Why why is there black on black murder? Why what is causing yeah. uh, on the cases of, you know, a white officer killing a black person? What 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 is going on in their their mind? And or, or a white officer killing a white person, which that's another thing that's not discussed either. Yeah. Okay. And to add to that, normally daily, there are a million, um, a million times a day, police have an interaction with the general public of the United States. So you will uh, get pulled over, for example. That's an interaction that I'm talking about. In the United States, there are a million daily interactions between, US, between citizens in the, in the United States and law enforcement, mm -hmm. on average a million times a day. So that means 365 million interactions between police and the population occur annually. And for the police to have 365 million interactions with the population and a thousand of those are deaths by the police is a very small number. And, 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 and when the police do shoot, whether they shoot a black American, a white American or other, mm -hmm. normally 80 plus, almost 90% of the time, that interaction is because the person killed, whether they're white, black or other, is armed. It's a tiny percentage that are not armed and that die at the hands of police. Well, and the other thing that I also too didn't really appreciate is in his speech, he he made all of this about race again, you know, and he was talking about how, you know, Hispanic and black parents have to have these conversations of, with their kids of when they get stopped to turn on their internal lights and all that in the car and on all of this stuff. And and he's like, white parents don't have to do that with their children. And it's like, uh, excuse me, no. It's like, my dad 
taught me that when I was first learning how to drive, you know, he was an ex-police officer and, and he did. He gave us that speech Fair about enough. how to be a responsible driver, how to follow the law. But then if you do get pulled over, this is what you need to do. And it was about respect, you know, and following if they wanted to see your license, if they wanted to see your registration, you did it. You didn't argue with them, you know, and and, and I got taught that. And, and so I was just like, who is he to make all of these assumptions in these speeches? You don't know what is going on in private homes. You don't know what people are being taught, but you take this moment when our 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 country is in societal chaos and make it about race i don't get it okay it's political so you you make a good point and you can counter it with factual data that i just kind of talked about and and i think what you're getting at also is regardless of who you are when you're pulled over you are probably most likely far more likely to live with an interaction with the police if you don't resist. And historically, if you look at some of the five, uh, 15 prominent Black Americans recently that were killed by police, a lot of them resisted arrest. For whatever reason, they resisted arrest. But that narrative doesn't come out very often. Even Tyree, uh, he, he just passed away. Sadly, he resisted arrest right there on the spot. And one could argue, well, you know, he resisted arrest after they were pummeling him. Okay. But he, Michael, jo- Michael Johnson, who resisted arrest. Uh, there are a lot of prominent names that are out there that resisted arrest. That young man who jumped back in the car and then drove off and, and then was killed in the car wreck, he resisted arrest. So th- all I'm saying is that should be part of the statistics. Right. But it's also about the person taking accountability for their actions. A few times that I have gotten pulled over and I have gotten a warning or a ticket, I unfortunately justly deserved it, a.k.a. the California role is my weakness. And I get I've gotten busted on it twice and then a, a speeding violation. But that was, yeah, through one of the cameras. But it. You know, it's also too, if if you break the rules, take accountability for it. Don't play victim and don't run from it. Like, but that, again, that's a societal thing too. But you know? there, there are those on the other side of the political divide that disagree with what you're saying. And they will say, well, if I don't get caught to begin with, there's no way I'm going to die. So I'm going to resist and I'm going to try to get away because I'm marked. But then I would just go back to the statistics, the statistics of the number of black Americans, the number of white Americans, the number that are shot by police. It's a, it's a far larger percentage. And that makes sense because if you have a gun and you're in the act of a robbery or a murder and the police come upon you, that's when that conflict exists. And that's when the police shoot at you. They tell you to drop it. You don't drop it. You're going to get, you're going to most likely lose that situation. So very rarely, like I said, 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 black Americans that die annually at the hands of the police. 
200 of them are armed, 20, 30, 40 are not armed. 400 or so white Americans are armed that are killed by police. 20, 30, 40, 50 are not armed. They're also killed by police. But you also have to take into account, like let's say a a policeman drives or pulls somebody over, they're in their car, and then the person in the car, although not armed, drives away. And the policeman puts their arm in the car, holds onto the wheel to hold on, and they're, they're, they're not able to let go because now the car is traveling at a certain rate of speed. They may reach into their gun and shoot that driver to try to stop that vehicle. Yes, that was an unarmed person in that car, but they resisted arrest and drove away. Whether they're black, white, whatever, that, 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 that then would fall under an unarmed person shot and killed by a police. So, anyways. And so what the data that you are providing is yeah. statistical based off of the yeah. FBI. So, so if you go to the FBI and Department of Justice statistics on crime, you know, those crimes, when you look at robberies and murders, they fall under violent crimes and you'll see it broken out by race um, and year. And so you can do your homework and look at those numbers and validate those numbers. It's normally about 200 plus or minus black Americans that are killed annually by police. It's 400 to 450 plus or minus white Americans that are killed by police. It's usually about 800 to 1200 annually that are killed by police in in a year. And that, that data is there and I'm just quoting it. I'm not opining on it. I'm quoting the statistics as I've read them. Right. So I don't with, with, you know, and if you, and then some people will say, well, okay, uh, wait a second. So 250 out of a thousand black Americans are killed by police annually, but black Americans only make up 20 or make up 16% of the U S population. So there's a higher number of police killings to black Americans than there are the percentage of black Americans. Well, then you could go to the statistics and say that same FBI statistics will show that black Americans commit 50 to 55% of the nation's murders, even though they're only 16% of the population. So that makes sense why a police and a black American committing a crime have a higher interaction probability. Because if a, if a black American is committing a crime of robbery, most likely they're doing it with a gun. If they're committing a crime of murder, they're most likely doing it with a gun. So there's probably where the 200 plus black Americans that are killed by police annually happen. And that makes up 20 to 25 percent of the overall annual deaths of black Americans. And the same thing with white Americans. If, if they're making up 400 to 450 of the deaths. And they make up about that percentage wise of the population of the country. So one would argue that percentage um, is is different than the black American percentage. Well, but but they're not they're not there's not a higher percentage of white Americans and more than double, almost triple the 
we just said if 60% of the population are black Americans in the United States, but 50 plus percent are committing the murders in the country and the robberies in the country, you would have to have 80% of the robberies and the murders killed uh, uh, by white Americans to have that same statistical analysis. And it's right. just not there. So, well, and for, and I guess the thing for me is I, I'm kind of a person that I like to zoom out and I like to look at all angles. And so for me, I guess I am questioning because was slavery real? Did it happen? Yes. Is racism real? Does it happen? Yes. Over throughout history, has it happened? Yes. I, I, I see it all. But the thing is, is racism where we were 100 years ago is totally different than where we are now. We have made progress. And why are we not looking at the progress and then fine tuning how we can make it better? It's like we have made it this huge thing and we have made it political that and we're going to these places that are so, I don't know, just complicated that it's creating more of a divide uh, amongst races than bringing us together why are we not, not focusing on yes we need to address the past we need to heal the past i don't think it includes reparations and giving like and all this stuff but we need to be talking about our history and where it went wrong and where we can learn from it and do better and that slavery, yes, it existed. But I mean, slavery throughout history has happened in all different types of races. Racism has occurred with all different types of races. I mean, look at when the Irish first came here. I mean, there was discrimination against them. But the the thing is, is, you know, we're, we're making all of this crazy and insanely politicized, but nobody is wanting to talk about the elephant in the room is right now we have current slavery going on in this country and around the world. And it's against amongst all races and that's human trafficking and sex yeah. trafficking. And nobody is wanting to address that yeah. form of slavery. And that's a whole nother discussion on a whole nother podcast. <laughs> well, no, I understand, but I'm just, I'm yeah. just trying to say, I, I'm feeling so frustrated because when our leadership is taking this and putting it out at a state of a union address, and no, but everybody's wanting to, to make things political instead of actually getting, let's get to the meat and the potatoes of it all. And let's solve it all, you know, of looking at the core issues of why is this happening? And then you bring in the factual data and what they're talking about isn't based even off of factual data, like what you're providing. It just perpetuates this, this political divide. Yeah, all I'm pointing out are the actual numbers that I've read. I'm, I'm not calling it racist, non-racist. Uh, that's just the, the data that I've acquired. Right. And, and, and more times than not, uh, I would argue that those that view the world in a prism of continued racism tend to be on the liberal or progressive side of politics. And those who don't view it as systemic racism and continued racism view it, one would argue, from the conservative side of politics. So there you just said and stated it's most likely a political issue. And so maybe on your podcast, you could have both sides of that political discussion. 
No, I, I, I would love to do that. I mean, if, there, if I have a listener that is yeah. more like liberal leaning and has a different perspective, I would love them to come on yeah. and share their perspective. And for all three of us or more, have an open dialogue yeah. about this because this is such a, a crux of our divide yeah. that making things very complicated that we need, we need to get to the core of why is this happening? And I truly believe it goes farther than the pigmentation of someone's skin color. This is this is this is the loss of um, morality um, and and a value structure that is occurring. It's a mental health issue. You know, I think one of the things that I would like to see, like with our police officers, what resources do they get? They they have one of the highest stress jobs, along with like firefighters and everything, of seeing death you know, major injury, all of, um, I mean, just horrific things, just like our military, what type of mental health care are they getting to work through the trauma that they see day in and day out in their job? That, that if they, it doesn't get taken care of, if they repress it and stuff it, it comes out sideways in long-term, you know? And, and so. And to get that, to glean that information, you know, the, like, your your local police will will most likely give you time if you have those hard questions. Hey, what does their training look like at the police academy, at the FBI academies? What courses are you taking while you're in training? What courses? Uh, what continuing education do you have while you're on the job? What mental what evaluations do you have? And that's all progressing today. But or, to or, a, to a point, all I'm saying is they they go through quite a bit of training and continuation training, as do the military. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so there are a lot. There are answers to what you just asked that that's available. And it all depends on is it at a national level? No, because there's this thing called federalism. And you you, you we talked about articles, right, four or five six and seven of the United States, states are empowered, counties are empowered, cities are empowered, and they, they, uh, they have their legislators that write their laws. And so therefore, they, they have their processes. So anyways, that's all, that's all good discussions, but I would argue that that data is out there if you go reach for it within certain police departments, sheriff's departments, state trooper departments, FBI departments, that information is out there on what training they go through initially and then continuation training. I think that's what you're talking about. Well, I, I guess I, I'm talking about it. It's just, it's very multifaceted, I guess. For me. It, it, it's going deep to the core of the issue. And, and from a psychological perspective, trauma is real. And if people you know, and it, it doesn't just have to be police officer, military, it's just in standard of life. If, if people experience trauma and they don't work through it in healthy ways, it can come out sideways. And so. Excellent. Well, good discussion. Thanks for letting me join in. No, I appreciate it. And thank you for all your wisdom and your insight. I always appreciate your No problem. Look forward to the next uh, podcast that you uh, have and discuss. 
Yeah, well, we will be back Monday with uh, a guest. I'm really excited to have him on. His name is Cody, and uh, he is from Eastern Oregon. And he listened to Rob and I's first podcast, and he had some interesting insight and wisdom. So we both decided to invite him onto the show to dialogue. So we're going to be recording that Monday and have that out next week. So I'm excited. Look forward to it. Yeah, that, because that's part of the podcast is it's really wanting to give voice to Oregonians to share their perspectives. So, and it doesn't matter, you know, what your perspective is. It's just like. L- listener perspective. Excellent. Yeah. So thank you, Rob. You have a great weekend and listeners. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. That's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to check out our website at www.betweentwoparties.com for more information and links from today's episode. Also, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and iHeartRadio. Our social media sites are Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Telegram, Truth Social, CloudHub, Rumble, and YouTube. If you like what you hear and you want to support our grassroots podcast for change, all donations are graciously accepted through Venmo. May we all look past our differences to realize we the people have more in common than we have differences. We all love our freedoms, our children, our grandchildren, and we are committed to leave a better world for our future generations. We are stronger together than we are divided, so let's start building a bridge of unity. Until next time, peace y'all, and remember, love always wins.